I'm Jeffrey Goldberg, the editor-in-chief of The Atlantic, and welcome to The Atlantic Interview. Each week, I'm going to talk to a fascinating person and ask them a bunch of questions, and they're going to give me a bunch of fascinating answers, and that's the entire concept of this new podcast. Uh, today, we're going to listen to my interview with Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie, the great Nigerian-American novelist. In America, I feel black with all of its, all of the rubbish that comes with it. And as a special surprise, which is not a surprise anymore now that I'm about to tell you, uh, we have ta Coates from The Atlantic, who is not a great Nigerian-American novelist, but is a great writer nonetheless. Chimamanda, as much as I hate to say this, is dead right. Um, it pains me to say that, but... I spoke to Chimimanda and Tanahasi a couple of weeks ago in Paris. I like, I like when people are actually honest. Wait, hold on. Let me, let me we'll keep this on the thing. Welcome to the Atlantic interview. I'm Jeffrey Goldberg, the editor in chief of the Atlantic. And my guest today is, Ch- <laughs> sorry, because now you're going to do it to me. I'm Jeffrey Goldberg. I'm the editor in chief of the Atlantic. And welcome to the Atlantic interview. Uh, my guest today is Chimimanda. Okay, I'm going to explain what's going on here right now. So my guest, I'm going to just going to, oh no, this is this, I'm going to just explain it real real time. Chimamanda Adichie is my guest, but she keeps muttering the word chimichanga at me to just kind of screw me up. But her name is Chimamanda, and everybody knows her because she's a famous novelist. And uh, we're here in Paris, actually, in a in a big hotel. Uh, we got our audio engineer Jake, and I got our deputy assistant audio engineer Tanahasi Coates sitting next to me. Uh, Tanahasi is also a national correspondent of the Atlantic, but mainly he just does audio. Um, and uh, he's just going to like sit in the in the corner and and mutter at us. Uh, Chimamanda, welcome. Thank you to the Atlantic interview. Thank you. How exciting is this for you? It is the highlight of my life. When did somebody actually call you Chimichanga? When they interviewed, they, uh, did that really happen, no, or is that just happen. a thing? No, no, seriously, it happened in London. It happened at the Royal Festival. They don't even have Chimichangas in London. She was she American? I think she might have been uh, that American. That would explain it. And what she is meant it? well. Yeah. Did you laugh or did you just bust her chops? Oh no, I laughed. She, oh, okay. she turned bright red. What is a chimichanga anyway? I, I don't actually. No, I don't know. I think it's. I really don't know. Is it like a burrito? I think it's like a a, a, a burrito, but it's it's it's, fried. it's. Is it fried? I thought it was wet. Oh, that was Tanahasi. Tanahasi oh. quotes is now going to talk about uh, chimichangas. You got it's, anything else? It's a burrito, and you fry it. Oh, oh it's, it's a fried bad. burrito. Wait, can you just do me one more favor? Can you just say the word burrito again? <laughs> no, you said it, it, was, it was the most beautiful rendition of burrito. Oh, I think I could do the American version. It's like a burrito. Oh, do you go to Taco Bell a lot? Do you go to Taco <laughs> um, Bell? I don't really like Taco Bell. <laughs> yeah. I don't do Taco Bell. What's your favorite Bell. fast food? I don't do fast food. No, come on. I'm like one of those really anal people. I have kale salads. Oh, really? Oh, you like <laughs> California? Is that what it is? Yeah, that was pretty awesome. <laughs> Uh, yeah, Tanahasi, you can't do a you can't do a upper crusty Nigerian accent now, can you? <laughs> Nigerian British accent. Um, but this podcast is going really well so far, I think. Um, <laughs> Jimmy Manda. So uh, let's talk about uh, identity in in Africa and America and Trump and the 21st century and the role of literature and helping everybody uh, understand why our world is so complicated and falling apart. But before we do that, tell me why you don't like Tanahasi Coates. Mm. I do like Tanahasi Coates. Well, very now much. you're lying, though. No, I'm not lying. Uh, okay. I do not lie. Uh huh. Except in my novels, I like very him nice very line. much. I think he's. I think. <laughs> I think he's brilliant, and yeah. I like what he writes. I think he's a truth teller. I do too. I do too. And it's not only because we're colleagues at the Atlantic, but in the interest of full disclosure, your relationship was not always one of mutual respect and love. Well, he was a bit of a. I'm not quite sure. Am I allowed to say anything on the podcast? Do you I can have say to watch anything oh, on right. the podcast. So he was, this is I, the Say Anything podcast. Okay, so the first time I met him, he was an asshole. Oh my God. Um, 
So I, I came up to him and I was very nice and I said, I've read your work. And he just said, oh, thanks. And he turned away. That is not Wow. What, was this when he was famous or super famous? He hadn't become James Baldwin. Ha! He was just, oh. he was he was Richard Wright. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, were you were you not James Baldwin yet? No, he's James Baldwin uh, now. Now he's James Baldwin, <laughs> yes. yeah. So yeah. He, wasn't, he wasn't super famous. He was just sort of famous at the time. And I had read everything that he'd written, and I wanted to become friends. And I went up to him and I said, "Oh, I." I oh, this is so sweet and I sad. Know, I know. I, I was. I was deeply wounded for for a while. But oh. I wait. I, you know, Tanahasi, you do have a reputation, even though you're famous now, for being a nice guy. So this is really kind of shocking to me. That that's because it didn't happen that way. All right. How did it happen? <laughs> what happened was um, I was at the Washington Ideas Festival. From the Atlantic? From the Atlantic. Yeah, thank you very much. I was there working, and um, I had heard that Chimamanda was going to be there because she was being interviewed by Michelle Norris, who I know. And I was like, wow, 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 the great Chimamanda is going to be there. And as she went on stage, she spoke to me. And I turned, and it was like a breeze, oh, like the most angelic on. breeze. Oh, like come on. Cool breeze. Cool breeze. It was like, breeze. like an ethereal spirit. She didn't even walk past. She floated past. Oh, come on. And I just... <laughs> Turned to speak and I could only manage two words and then she was gone. Oh, so, so why does she think you're an asshole then? I don't know. Oh. I don't know. We're not going to solve this problem oh, today. Man. No, we're not. We're not going <laughs> to. We're not, not going to. That's what happened. We're not going to solve this problem. So, Chimimanda, I want to ask you a question. This is a serious question, <laughs> relatively serious question. Uh, the uh, so we're in Paris and we just did a, an event on stage and you did this thing that I love panelists to do, which is subvert the entire. Uh, purpose and meaning of the conference that we're attending by by talking about how, in fact, you don't like Paris that much. I want to just talk about that for a minute because it's so unusual. Also, it gets Tanahasi's blood going because he <laughs> loves, 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 loves Paris. But um, but start with start with something that just happened at the airport. You said you kind of had a bad experience coming into Paris. Yes. What um, was that about? You know, so I present my Nigerian passport, which is all I have. Um, I have an American green card, but a Nigerian passport. Uh-huh. And the man, the immigration man, in that sort of haughty, thin-faced French way, uh, looks at the visa and says to me, uh, this is for Spain. Why are you here? And I said, well, because I've been to Spain and, and I, it's, it's a Schengen visa. I can use it for France. Mm. And he says, where is your return ticket? He doesn't ask me why I'm here. He doesn't, you know, so I give him the return ticket. And at this point, people are watching us because other people had spent a minute. And <laughs> at this point, I'd been there for 10 mm-hmm. minutes. So in total, I was there for 30 minutes mm. standing there. And he would ignore me and turn around and mumble something to his colleague and then turn back to me. And I'd be like, is something wrong? Can you tell me what's wrong? And he would completely ignore me and then make that, you know, that really annoying Gallic gesture, sort of the shruggy thing. Mm. But but really for me it was power play. What he was saying is you're not welcome here, mm-hmm. and and he didn't have a reason to, for saying that because I had everything. I had I had a valid visa. I had a you know I had everything I needed to have as a person coming from a country that doesn't have resources, which means that we are seen as people who will stay on in countries like this. But I also remember thinking I have an American green card. Why the hell would I want to stay on in France? Mm. Can I ask you a question? Do you ever 
are tempted? Are you ever tempted to say, you know, I want a MacArthur Genius Prize. I'm a best-selling. <laughs> no, 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 no. This is serious because, like, do you ever want to play the? You don't know who I am. I mean, it's obnoxious in its own sense, yeah. but but you know, you're a, a woman of achievement, and I'm just curious no. if that ever <laughs> tempting to no, you. No, I think maybe part of my peak and my rage maybe it comes from my sense of privilege, which is, oh, nobody treats me like this, right? Maybe, but there's also because you're of kind me- of a big deal. Sort of, sometimes, in some places. But, you know, I just feel that I don't have to be somebody to be treated with dignity, right? Because I'm thinking, why can't you just be polite? Why can't you just answer my question? Why can't you do your damn job? But there's a long history of people coming from from Africa, from who in Europe are treated like this. So it's not, you know, I don't think I'm unusual. Can you, can you? Compare and contrast the the African experience, and I hate to abuse the broad term African, but for the let's say the West African experience in Europe versus the United States. Oof! How much time do we have? Uh, it's my podcast. I'll do Ta-Nehisi, whatever I want. Tanahasi could do that. <laughs> no, I, I think you know Tanahasi has never been to Sub-Saharan Africa or yeah, well, any part of Africa. He's coming to Lagos next year. It's all settled. And and looking at him, he's actually Igbo. I think his his ancestry is Igbo, so he's really kind of my brother. Anyway, we Africans can tell just by looking mm. the bone structure. Um, <laughs> no, no, sounds like one of those sort of British uh, yeah. <laughs> anthropologists. We, we did that about eighty, ninety years ago. It didn't work out well. <laughs> just move it along. No, we did. Okay. Yeah. Um, right. I don't. I, I think. Yeah, I don't know. I can talk about the U.S. with more authority, I guess, because I like America. I know America has many problems, but there is for me as as a black woman, as an African woman, a sense of um, possibility in America that I don't feel when I'm in Europe, particularly in continental Europe. I like the UK. No, I like London. Mm-hmm. The rest of the UK. Could do without. It's interesting, but you know. Um, but in the UK, I, do you ever feel that, that I, burden of colonial history on you? In America, I feel black mm-hmm. with all of its, um, all of the rubbish that comes with it. So I became black in America. Right. Um, in Nigeria, I wasn't black. I didn't think of myself You're as not black. black when everybody's black. It's right. not a separate identity. Right. So when I go back home now, when I go back to Nigeria now, I, I get off the plane in Lagos and I just don't think of race. I get on the plane and, and arrive in Atlanta and immediately I'm aware of race. I mean, you, you just know. And it's, it's that interesting thing where race becomes a possible reason for things in a way that not in Nigeria. Like at Charles de Gaulle Airport just now. Exactly. Right. So, so if somebody's an asshole in Nigeria, and many people are, I think they're having a bad day. They're assholes. They don't like me, right? If it happens in the U.S., all of those things, and I'm thinking also they're racist. But that, that's interesting. I, I had this conversation with, I think, Tanahasi and maybe some other people where, you know, I... I there is an assumption if you're a, if you're a, if you're a minority, if you're a, a person of color, and something goes wrong in an interaction with a person who's white, there's an assumption or a fear or a suspicion of, uh, of that, that, that it's race-based. And the truth of the matter is that white people are often assholes to white people. Um, and it's, and it's, it's interesting, especially in a racially fraught moment like we're in in America where everybody goes right to the single point explanation for things. You know what, though? I mean, I, yes, white people are assholes to other white people, but, but I think there's... Believe me. Oh, I know that. I'm from Brooklyn originally. But, but there is something to be said for a particular kind of assholery. There are varieties of assholes. Yes, there's a particular kind of assholery that 
um, white people reserved for black people. Oh, go on. So, and I'm going to move the mic over and get Ta-Nehisi's view on this. This is interesting. And I now. think, and I do think, though, that um, there's often, you know, when, when, and I think, I think black people should be trusted to interpret their own experiences. Absolutely. Because often when, when a black person says this is racist, um, I think in America this happens quite a bit. You're told, oh, oh, surely it wasn't racist. Or, you know. And I'm just thinking, well, if the black person who, was ex- who sort of has inherited this, this, um, I'm going to be dramatic and say trauma, but, but really I think so. You know, they, they don't want it to be racist. I mean, I, when things happen to me in the U.S. when I suspect that it's racist, and it, it doesn't have to be something massive. It can just be, um, it can just be a kind of, um, you know, when, people, when somebody doesn't extend dignity and courtesy to you, and you can tell that they would be different with a white person. You can tell. And there are times when a white person has been nasty, and I've known it wasn't race. I mean, I've sort of dealt with grumpy old white men who I just sense are just the same with everybody. But you can tell. You can always tell. It's a very subtle thing, and it's something that you... When I came to the U.S., I didn't really know because it's not something that... um, You know, it's it's not something that comes with (laughs) dark skin. It's something that comes with living in a country that's racist. Mm-hmm. So having lived in the U.S. for a while, I started to understand the subtleties. I started to know when it was race. I didn't when I first got there. Mm-hmm. But I, I guess my point is, I don't think um, that black people are quick to rush to race as a reason, because I don't think black people want it to be race. You know what I mean? I mean, I feel like I, I don't want racist things to happen. So when I point out that they're happening, it's not because I, I, I enjoy it. I would rather they weren't happening. I actually would just like people to have a bad day and be nasty to me in a way that they would be to anybody else. Right. But, but you me, can tell. You well, can tell when it's raised. Let me ask our deputy audio uh, engineer, ta Coates, if he has uh, the same view that, uh, that um, white Americans reserve a special kind of assholery for, for black people. No, she, uh, uh, Chimamanda, as much as I hate to say this, is dead right. Um, it pains me to say that, but <laughs> because she doesn't like you. If I must, yeah, no, she's my guts. Um, but actually, she, she's—I think she's quite correct on that. Um, and I think um, this um, this whole notion is like an extra level that comes with. Like somebody might just be a general asshole, um, but there is there's a you know an extra level of a condescension or, or something that that is with it. I think also the bigger thing is you know she, she's correct in that. I'd rather it not be. Like, I much, much would rather it not be, you know. Um, I, I will say, and I want to be clear about this, as an African-American, as an African-American, um, not as a black Parisian, not as a black French person, not as somebody coming from Martinique, not as somebody coming from Senegal or Algeria, as an African-American, one of the things I do get here is when people are assholes. I know they're assholes. They don't like Americans. And I know that. You know what I mean? Like, and that's, okay, fine. You know what I mean? Does that make you feel like an American? Yes. More here in Paris than in America? Do you feel more yes. American? Mm. Yes, yes. Except when Obama got elected. That's the only you know, moment that, that was close. That's definitely. Because that's how they perceive you. And they interact with me as an African-American that way. Jimanda, can I ask you something about Ta-Nehisi? Something that he wrote recently. So we're going to pause here for a moment. We're going to thank our sponsor. And then we're going to come right back with more Chimamanda.
I want to talk about women because I like women in particular. I mean, men are okay, but women are my thing. <laughs> so <laughs> I was taken aback to learn that um, 53% of white women had voted for Trump. And the reason I was surprised was I just assumed that um, the majority of women would not vote for a person who... Um, it's not just a person who boasts about assaulting women, but a person who clearly doesn't just really think of women as equals. Mm-hmm. And I realized that they voted for him because white women are also white. You know, white women are women, but they're also white. And I think it's the whiteness. I think that a lot of um, Trump's campaigning was coded. It was coded language about race. It was, you know, that whole idea of make America great again and and the, um, the very strong anti-immigration um, positions, the... You know, sort of the caricatures of um, Mexicans. And I think a lot of that had to do with whiteness. And, and in a strange sort of way, I understand why the white women, the white women who would find that appealing. What do you understand? I think that people are threatened by, I think as humans, change is something that worries us. Um, and I think that when people... Imagine, I mean, it doesn't necessarily even have to be true that some sort of catastrophic change is coming. And I think for them, it was that this black man had been president and suddenly there were black people in positions of power. You know, the attorney general was a black man. And I, and I think that there are people for whom that was very um, upsetting. Even people who voted for Obama. And I think that for many hmm. of them, that, you know, suddenly they're like, wait, hold on. And I can sort of imagine a white person saying they're taking over. Now there are too many black people in these positions of power. And I can see how they would see that as threatening to their sense of what America is supposed to be, um, that kind of thing. There's a kind of entitlement that comes with whiteness in America. Like, I think that white people, I mean, so when they're talking about this being a, a question of, um, of economics, Never mind that people who have money voted for Trump. But even that, I keep thinking, why don't we talk about the minority um, working class? I mean, we, we talk about in the U.S. the working class as though it's somehow uniformly white. And the black people I know who are working class in the U.S., because I asked them all, all seven of them, hmm. and none of them voted for Trump. And, and they have economic problems. They too feel left out. And so I think for me the question then becomes... Um, why why did the why didn't they vote for Trump? Because Trump was selling sort of this magical idea of, you know, bring back the coal mines, everything's gonna be perfect, and they didn't vote for him. And I think that makes a very strong case for whiteness being part of Trump's whole shtick. You surprised by events of the last year? I have been. I think that it's much worse than I imagined it would be. And and it's just made me realize how incredibly fragile democracy is. Mm. There were things I used to think would never happen in America. You know, when you're, when you're from a place like Nigeria, it's very common for people to say, you know, people, we, we spend all our time criticizing our government. And then somebody will be like, go to America. They will never do that, right? Yeah. That will never happen in America. Mm-hmm. And I've just realized it can. Mm-hmm. How, how bad do you think it could, I mean, you have an interesting experience of living in, uh, or growing up under constantly changing military dictatorships, mm-hmm. right? How, how bad do you think it could get? Oh, I think it can get very bad. Even was, in America? Yes, but it's already bad. I mean, did, did anybody ever think that this would be a country where people would go to airports and pretty much be arrested? I mean, it felt... There's so much going on in this in, in the U.S. that feels very banana republicy to me. I mean, it's, and I think it can get worse. And I've also realized that Americans 
bow to power. I hadn't mm-hmm. thought, I'd imagined that America, you know, that Americans, you know, sort of this egalitarian ideal of America where, you know, the big man. Ostentatiously individualistic. Yeah. And, you know, people don't sort of, there isn't, I mean, not that class doesn't exist, obviously it does, but it's not, you know, it's America. It's where you can't really tell who's wealthy by looking at them in the way that, you know, you go to Nigeria, you can bloody well tell who's wealthy because they're all of this, there's power around them. I used to think Americans wouldn't bow to power in the way they have done. I mean, I've been taken aback by how, how journalism has covered Trump. I mean, I, you know, how people argue about, should we say he lied? Yes, he lied. But I think the power of the presidency has really, that I didn't realize how much in awe Americans were. Um, you didn't think deference was an American yes, uh, habit? deference to a certain kind of political power. I didn't think so, no. Mm-hmm. Right, right, right. So when, when in the last year or so, or into the, you know, going back through the campaign, when did you say to yourself, that reminds me of something that I saw once in Nigeria? Was there anything specific that sort of triggered a, a specific memory? Hmm. I think my first shock was the travel ban and the uncertainty that people had and the kind of how arbitrary and just, it didn't make sense. So there was a, a woman who came from Nigeria with a valid visa and she was turned away. Uh-huh. And suddenly my, brother, my brother-in-law, who's a US citizen and a physician in Connecticut, he wanted to go back to Nigeria for two weeks. And my sister said to him, don't go, don't go because you don't know they might not let you back in, don't go. And it made me think of, there's a certain uncertainty about living in a military dictatorship where I remember when I was um, maybe eight or nine, and um, there was talk about a coup going to happen, and my father was supposed to go to Europe. And so my, fa- my mother said to him, don't go to Lagos, don't go, because we don't know what's going to happen. And I just kind of felt, watching TV and sort of the coverage of the travel ban, I just thought, I can't believe this is America. It felt sadly familiar. Uh. Yeah. Can you say that's a very... Well, hold on, hold on. The audio engineer needs to intervene. <laughs> Sorry. I mean, again, like, that's the... And I, I, I hope this doesn't... Um, that's the difference in the African and the African-American experience. Um, I can't believe this isn't happening in America is not an African-American mm-hmm. sense. It's a, a, a black uh, sense if you're coming from Africa and you know, you, America's this distance thing. Mm-hmm. Much like probably a lot of the things I would say here in France. Mm-hmm. You know, a black French person was looking at me like, you know what I mean, where, where, where did you think you were coming into? You know? Um, so it's just interesting to, to hear, you know, for, for black folks, I mean, I think in America, you know, born and raised in America, um, the deference to power is very, very familiar. You know, um, our ancestral heartland in the South, I mean, what became democratic in the 1960s within the, you know, living memory of a, of a lot of people, you know, so this is different. Yeah. No, I, I completely get I, I know that. I mean, I, I've often thought about how um, at the time when black Americans had to sort of step aside on the sidewalk so a white person could walk past. Um, a black African was, was, you know, if you did well, you could get a scholarship to go to Cambridge or Oxford. When, when black Americans um, weren't allowed just basic, just basic human dignity in America because they were black, in Africa, particularly sort of the privileged classes, they were in charge of their own destinies. You know, so... And I, and I think we inherit, you know, I, I do think that things go down generations. And um, I know that my worldview would be very different had I, had I been, um, had I been American born, not even just American born, had I been, had my grandfather 
who actually was nearly sold into slavery. You know, my great-grandfather, because there's mm-hmm. a story in my family about how he was rejected because he had this wound on his leg, which was, thank God for the wound. But um, had that happened, maybe I would be, I don't know, a Brazilian or an African-American. Um, I think my entire view of America would be different. Very different. Um, I want to talk uh, for a minute about feminism and your uh, recent uh, call to arms, let's put it. (laughs) Uh, But, I mean, it's uh, well-timed, God knows. Um, But before we do that, uh, there's 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 sort of uh, one of the many interesting things about you is your um, intolerance or impatience for um, jargon and... um, Groupthink, and you periodically get into a kind of useful trouble um, <laughs> by by speaking your mind. I mean, you are, you know, it's fair to say that you're associated with a, a liberal worldview, mm-hmm. but you you seem to be a little bit frustrated lately in mm-hmm. sort of this, uh, I don't know what you would call it, um, Darwinian process of, of 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 winnowing out people who sound heterodoxical. Is that a <laughs> fair? I think that's an interesting way of way, putting it. Yeah, no, no. process of winnowing out the heterodoxy. Yeah, no, but talk, talk about that. I mean, we, we, know what, we know what the problems are on the right. Let's mm. talk about the problems on the left. Yes, and, and the problems on the left interest me more because I just think that there's an, there's an increasing... Saying intolerance is maybe putting it simply, but it, you're supposed to conform. It's no longer, in my opinion, actually liberal. There's language you're supposed to use. There's an orthodoxy you're supposed to conform to. And if you don't, the judgment is not just, it's, 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 it takes on a moral thing. You, you become a bad, evil person. And it doesn't matter what you've done in the past or what you stand for. You just become evil and you're demonized. And it makes me uncomfortable because, you know, I, I think it's problematic in so many ways. I think people are, are frightened of saying what they think. And I think that's a bad thing for society. Um, they're frightened to say what they think, but sometimes these things to, let's say, the group that the thing is directed uh, against uh, have legitimate reasons to but be offended. The there should yeah. be some social sanction for something like that. No? Just to um, be devil's advocate here. Yes and no. But, you know, and I should say this, that I'm a person who believes very strongly in, um, you know, ideas of inclusion and hearing everybody's story and that sort of thing. And so... So we do need to hear. I am also, I think it's too easy, again, to say that the answer to bad speech is more speech. But in general, I think so. Part of the problem, I think, with censoring is that sometimes there's the ever so slight assumption that that thing might be true. I, I don't know if that makes sense. No, it may, I mean, yeah. if you can't fight the idea with a better idea, then you fight it by, what do they call it on campuses now, no platforming? Like, you, you can't talk. Yeah, it's not just we'll have a protest outside, but yeah, you can't it's, talk. It's that, that kind of thing yeah. makes you a little bit. It uh, makes me very uncomfortable. And where, where do you think it's coming from? Like, what is the what is the source of it? I don't. Is it this anxiety that there could be two sides to a particular debate? No, because I think that um, my sense is that the American left fifty years ago wasn't like this. People still believed what they did about inclusion, and but there is a kind of um, and also there's. <laughs> It, there's an increase in self-righteousness, and there's also a sense in which you have to be—you have to speak for everyone. So, if you write about a white woman, for for many parts of the left, it's valid criticism to say you ignored Mexicans and Bangladeshis. And I'm just thinking, no. I mean, people have to be allowed to tell the story. I don't want. 
I don't necessarily want a white woman telling the Nigerian woman's story, right? And so maybe it's coming from knowing that the left is not, in fact, as inclusive as it thinks it is. And so because of that, I think that the people allowed on the stage are too few, too limited, sort of the, you know, the grand stage of who gets to decide what right. to talk acceptable about. speech, the boundaries yes. of acceptable yes. speech. Yes, and because of that, you, I, maybe the answer is to shut things down. I mean, but I don't want to do, I think that a lot of it is well-meaning. I think people, I think that what these young people on college campuses are trying to get at is an acknowledgement of that power. So it's not the same thing as a, as a Puerto Rican writing about uh, somebody from the Dominican Republic because they're both kind of like on the same level of powerlessness. Uh-huh. And I also think that when you're... I think I know a lot more about whiteness than white people know about blackness. Which is why I would like you to do that. But I mean, why, that would be a totally subversive thing. And, and according to even these rigorous rules of who gets to say what, yeah. for, for a member of a relatively speaking powerless community yeah. to 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 try to inhabit the life of a of a member of the majority community would be quite interesting. Anyway, I just I'm just giving you yeah. an assignment. I think it would be a great novel. Yeah, I'd buy I buy it. I, I will buy it retail. There's yeah. also a long history of white people doing this badly. Very you mean, like, badly. Nat Turner? I, I respect. Yeah, like just I mean Hold on, hold on. I got to turn the mic. Oh, now give us your big thought. No, I think like a, the the important and you know, obviously I'm a fan of people being able to write, you know, uh, about other people and do it respectfully. I love Ragtime, Cole House Walker. You know, right. I mean Doctor O did a successful job he did. of yes, he writing did. about yes, I love Ragtime too. Yeah, Ragtime's yeah. great. But he, you know, he was very, very, you know, respectful of the experience, as you should be about anybody's experience, you know, when you when you're writing about it. Um, unfortunately, African Americans and certainly Africans mm. in American culture have a long history of being presented by other people in a fashion that is, shall we say, at the very least, not respectful. Uh-huh. So all that baggage comes with it. You know what I mean? When somebody you know, is talking about, when it gets reflected to who has the right, which is not a question I would encourage to be asked, mm-hmm. but that's the, you know what I mean, the context and the place is coming. My, my only point is, is, is that I want writers to write about whatever they want to write about. So do I. So do I, I. And they could be then criticized so, for it, but I, yeah. I hate this idea that the space is being closed to but, anybody know, who wants to write anything about anything. It's a strange anything. thing, though, because there are two sides to it. So on the one hand, of course, I think anybody should write what they want. I think I, my friend Dave Eggers, and you know, it's not just because it's Name my dropper. Friend. Name dropper. Name dropper. Um, my dear friend, my beloved friend, Dave Eggers. So Dave wrote a book about um, a guy from Sudan called um, What is the What? And I thought it was very well done. And Dave is white and male, and, and this guy he wrote about is black and African. It's, it's not that it can't be done. It's simply, Tanahasi said it well, that there's a history. And it's not just that there's a history. It's also, I mean, when I say I know a lot more about whiteness than white people know about blackness, it's not because... Um, necessarily interested in whiteness. It's because I live in a world that is steeped in whiteness. That you don't have a choice. So I know a lot about white women's hair because all the women's magazines are about white women's Mm -hmm. hair. But my white friends know very little about my hair because Mm -hmm. they they don't know. What's the the biggest thing you know about white women's hair? Um, I think maybe the sort of the obsession with color. I mean, I... I know about color, I know about, you know, older women and gray, I know about the different shades of, um, you know, so how coloring is done, I know about um, blow drying, I know about flat ironing, I know about, I know. You could write a book. Oh, I could, I know, and, and I can tell, I look at women, I know what they've done to their hair. 
But they don't know what I've done to <laughs> they my They don't know hair. what you did to your hair. <laughs> <laughs> they don't know what to do. They've heard the word extension, but yeah, they don't, pre- like, don't precisely know what that means. And, right? and of course, America being America, where liberals are very well-meaning and, and nobody asks anything because they're just really well-meaning. Going back to this point about ever being scared <laughs> to like actually Yeah, and I don't mind. I mean, stuff. I'm like, ask me, I'll tell you. Because, don't, you know, so this woman said to me once, oh, your, your dreads are lovely. And I said Ooh. to her, no, the, I, I don't have dreads. The, they're braids. But there's no offense, man. I mean, no, there's no, 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 no. Because there's man. a difference between there's there's malicious intent and then there's just simple, well-meaning, not knowing. Yeah. And I and I like that. I like the the kind that isn't malicious. Let, let me come finally to the issues of feminism. Um, and in this very strange moment, and maybe very hopeful moment mm. that we're in in America, uh, the Harvey the the moment triggered by the revelations surrounding Harvey Weinstein, which has now taken on much more meaning than just what happened in one movie company over a period of years. The question is, I I feel like uh, maybe we've reached a tipping point. It seems as if um, it it used to be that the default position of women was not to talk about this, and now it seems like we're moving toward a a place where people can talk about it, and we'll we'll be getting a fuller understanding of how common Mm -hmm. this kind of behavior, maybe not the level of Harvey Weinstein behavior, but um, level of sexual harassment, intimidation. Am I being overly hopeful about where we're at? Yes. Yes. I'm happy that you're hopeful. I want to be hopeful too, but I don't know. And I I don't want Harvey Weinstein to be this, sort of the standard. I don't want him to be. So I'm happy that women, and I know about the Me Too hashtag and women are talking about it. Um, It doesn't surprise me, obviously, because I think that most women, if not all women, have a story. But it's also for me about other things. I mean, women, that we just need to find a way in our culture to start believing women. And I think that's really the fundamental thing. And, and so Harvey Weinstein-type assault is terrible, obviously. But so, so is um, just that larger diminishing of women in, all over the world. In the U.S., it's so much more subtle and almost sophisticated that it's difficult to point out. In Nigeria, it's very in your face, so you know what you're dealing with. You know, somebody will be like, oh, you're a woman, you really can't be governor. Right? So, so you know what you're dealing and with. And that will be said in, quote-unquote, oh, polite, polite society. Oh, yeah, they'll tell you. In the U.S., they're thinking it. They don't tell you. They Do you think people were thinking that about Hillary Clinton? Oh, of course. Of course there are many people who thought that. Yes. Men and women, by the way, not women just men. Women, too. Let's be clear. Right. Yes, women, too. Um, so I, I'm kind of, um, I mean, I'm, yeah, I want to be hopeful. I desperately want to be hopeful, but I don't know. Look, I, I'd love to talk uh, forever to you, but I know that we, uh, we have a date at Taco Bell here in Paris. We do, where we're having burritos we're and ha- chimichangas. <laughs> and our, oh, wait, let me ask Tanahasi because I think he felt like I was taking the mic from him and, and not letting him have voice here. Here's Tanahasi Coates with final words about Chimamanda and her and her work and her place in in literature today. Psych. No, no, no. Um, you might maybe you couldn't tell from our banner, but I'm I'm uh, you know uh, there are different versions of what happened the first time I met uh, Chimamanda. Um, my version is the true one, but let's just you know <laughs> let, you know let's let that be. Um, the thing um, I admire about Chimamanda more than anything. Um, as someone who has some aspirations in the direction that she, you know, is going, um, is, and I'm thinking of Americana specifically, um, is a lack of fear of romanticism. Um, it is in a, a deeply open book, and you know, there's this tendency, like when you're in literature, to feel like you know you have to dwell in the shadows, and 
you know, you have to, you know, embrace tragedy. I know this sounds weird coming from me, but it's actually an incredibly, <laughs> you know, hopeful work about the diaspora, you know, um, that I just love and adore and, and, and deeply, deeply admire. The second thing I really, really admire about Chimamanda, I knew when we were doing this panel today that she does not bullshit ever. Ever, and she does not suffer fools, and she does not suffer dumb questions, and she don't give a fuck. She'll get in front of a bunch of Parisians and tell them she don't like their city. And I love it, and I, I, I admire it, you know? And I also admire that, you know, she was not afraid to um, not be hopeful about this Harvey Weinstein business. I think it's ferocious. I think she's ferocious. Uh, I'll leave the last I word like to you. Now. <laughs> <laughs> you ferocious? I like thinking of myself as that. I roar like a lioness. As Rihanna would say, she's a savage. <laughs> savage in the best sense of the word. Uh, our guests today have been Tanahasi Coates uh, of the Atlantic and Chimamanda Adichie. I did it. I did it. I know. I know how to do it. Chimamanda, thank you very much for joining us. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Had fun. So that's our first show. I want to thank my guest Chimimanda Ngozi Adichie, as well as the Atlantic's own Tanahasi Coates. This show is produced and edited by Kevin Townsend, with production support from Matt Thompson and Kim Lau. If you like what you're hearing, please don't forget to review us in Apple Podcasts. If you don't like what you're hearing, just ignore this. You could also subscribe in your preferred podcast app, and of course, please share the show with a friend, or if you have more than one friend, share it with uh, a lot of friends. Thank you very much for listening. I'm Jeffrey Goldberg from The Atlantic, and we'll see you next Wednesday.